Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. So you probably heard that President Trump was in the Bay Area on Tuesday for a fundraiser. Well, so was his Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, who talked about the state's homeless and housing crisis. And as you can imagine... There were protests. Dr. Carson is no lie. You are the reason we sleep outside. Carson says that everyone is responsible for solving the state's homeless crisis. But he says cities got to take the lead. And he thinks places like San Francisco aren't doing their jobs. Evidence shows us quite clearly that the places that have the most regulation also have the highest prices and the most homelessness. Carson toured an affordable housing development in Petrero Hill. He wants to see more partnerships where public and private money are investing in low-income areas. But he didn't say whether the federal government would give more money for housing projects like these. I'm here on fact-finding and looking at things and, uh, you know, really wanting to solve the problem. And I think we make a huge mistake when we automatically consider that someone is the enemy. Carson didn't leave behind any big ideas. No recommendations, no solutions. But some people believe we've been thinking about this all wrong. Today, treating homelessness as a public health issue. I'm Devin Kadiyama. Welcome to The Bay. We need to make sure that we have available, accessible housing that's dignified and permanent for everybody. And we have to do that now. Joshua Bamberger is a family physician and an associate clinical professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. Earlier this year, Joshua became part of a homeless research group that was funded by a $30 million donation from Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff. We recorded this conversation with Joshua back in May. I've been a family physician taking care of homeless people for 30 years, and nothing I have in my black bag improves the health of a homeless person, not treating their diabetes, hypertension, screening for cancer. Nothing I have in any study that we've ever seen among homeless people improves health outcomes other than housing. Now, what specifically about housing or not having a home what does that do to the human body? Can you like walk me through somebody who may be housed currently, you know, falls on bad times, loses their home, what might be actually happening to their body over the years? When you're on the streets living at the level of stress that we really have no experience with except in war, the body is not able to fight off the normal things that make us age. 
So in many ways, people who are 50 on the streets, which is an average age of homeless people in San Francisco these days, act like they're 70 or 80 in terms of their health care needs. And that is partly because having been on the streets for so long, our immune system just gets ruined. When I began in 1989, the average age of homeless people in San Francisco was in the mid to late 20s. And now the average age of homeless people in San Francisco is in the early 50s. And it's, it's been a big this, difference. It's a huge difference in the health problems that people are suffering with because of aging is also very different. Uh, and why that has happened and how the economy has impacted the increasing age of homeless people is a, a fascinating and disturbing trend. What are we talking about with in terms of how quickly you mm-hmm. see improvements and, and what percentage of people do you see improvements in? I mean, is this, how do we prove that? Right. Obviously, it's not a, a silver bullet. People die. That's something they fail to teach you very often in medical school, but right. it is the truth. Um, but what I have seen, particularly when we look across the portfolio of housing that we have in San Francisco, and uh, you know, one of the things that is not known very well is that we have more supportive housing per capita in San Francisco than any city in this country. So we have housed a lot of people. And what that Mm -hmm. gives us scientists an opportunity to do is to assess different housing as it impacts people's health. When did we first start hearing about the idea, uh, the intersection between housing and healthcare? I mean, since time immemorial in some ways, right? I mean, in in some ways we always knew, and every animal on earth knows that the first thing they need to do is to house their family. So it's kind of a funny question, right? In terms of doing evaluation studies that looked at sort of quantitative outcomes, it really has only been the last 10 or 15 years. And and the data really isn't that good because it's a very hard study to do. It's very hard to study the healthcare outcome for people who are in housing and then have a comparison group that is on the streets and that you're not helping, right? So if someone gets sick on the streets, it's really our commitment to go out and find a way to improve their health, which may be housing. So it's very hard to have a comparison group to do a good study. Well, now it sounds like we have a lot more research or at least some research to stand on to talk, at least have a conversation about the intersection between housing and healthcare. But I imagine when the idea was first conceived, Mm -hmm. there wasn't this amount of research? That's true, but neither research nor sort of definition or existential issues. So, for example, I worked at the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness for at the end of Obama's uh, first term. And during that time, I I met with the head of Centers for Medicaid and Medicare. And I said to him, why don't you spend Medicaid dollars on housing? Because that's the only thing that works. And he said, housing is not what we do in healthcare. That is not healthcare. We do other things. And that existential definition has shifted over since that time, where many people from Bernard Tyson at Kaiser to uh, the head of CMS these days is embracing the fact that if we want to improve the health and spend our dollars wisely, we have to spend the money on housing people who are sick and on the streets. What do you think has happened over the last several years to shift people to thinking about uh, housing and, and uh, health care as one and the same? 
I mean, I know obviously there's still a lot of really important minds to convince. <laughs> a lot of people don't see that as the goal of the healthcare system. As I said, you know, it's, it's still, there are 16 places in the Medicaid regulations that states you can't use Medicaid dollars for housing. So until, and those regulations were, you know, written in the 60s. Yeah. So until those regulations get changed, we're always going to be stuck in being able to use our healthcare dollars most efficiently and effectively. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest problem that we have our biggest challenge that we have is fairness. So if you're a low-income person in California and you've saved and scrimped to be able to just survive in an apartment, say, in San Francisco, and then along comes some guy who's a chronic alcoholic who's, like, using a lot of emergency room visits, and we decide we're going to just throw some money onto that person to give them the same housing that you have struggled all your life to earn. A lot of people feel that that's not fair, and I think that's quite reasonable. I think we need in the homeless advocacy world to embrace that that position is fair and just, and yet we still need to find a way to use our resources so that the fairness can be honored and we can take care of the people who otherwise won't get off the streets without help. How do you balance that? So I I think the biggest strategy that we need to do is similar to what we've done with Proposition C, which is to try to find a way to tax the extraordinary wealth that is in the Bay Area, to serve people who will not get off the streets without more revenue. So we have 72 billionaires, maybe more, I haven't checked recently, in in (laughs) the Bay Area. Uh, And that amount of wealth is not being used to improve the common good. So we have to honor the fairness where the opportunity to bridge that gap in fairness comes from the wealth in the city. And it is the cause in many ways of the new influx of homeless people in this city. In the last four to five years, about half of the new homeless or what we call economically homeless, people who have been able to stay in apartments, but because of the increase in rent and something tips them over, they end up on the streets. So the study that my colleague Margot Cushell has done in Oakland shows that half, about, of all the people over the age of 50 who are homeless weren't homeless for a day until they were over the age of 50. So this is very different than the young people who I've been trying to serve all these years who've gotten older over time, as we all do, uh, but have lived with all these illnesses. And when we house them, we keep them alive. These are new homeless people, basically the people who have built Oakland and built San Francisco, who are now being on the streets of our cities. Do you have any idea how many people are going to be aging into homelessness? Well, it's a, it's a, a hard question to predict easily, but I don't think that we have reached the crest of the number of people who are going to fall into homelessness in this city. I mean, right now, our best guess is that for every person we house, three more people become homeless. That is just, you know, drowning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's daunting to think about. It's overwhelming and hard to get up sometimes in the morning to do this work (laughs) when you feel like you're just, you know, struggling against an economic Uh, wave that is just impossible to beat back. As I said, the average age of a homeless person in San Francisco is around 52 right now. When you look at all the people who die in San Francisco are homeless, their average age is 53. Now, that isn't the same as life expectancy. That's just the average age of 
death among uh-huh. homeless people, but there is a relationship, obviously. Yeah. And we're getting to a point where many of the older homeless people are dying at really high rates. So, you know, one of the ways yeah. that we're tragically going to get out of this uh, epidemiologic increase is through death. I imagine a big part of looking at uh, healthcare and housing it together is this idea that it might be cheaper in the long run. Like the pocketbook seems to be a, a big part of any argument for a solution. Yeah. What is the reality of what this could potentially mean for healthcare costs? You know, I think it's really hard to have a return on investment where investing in housing is going to somehow pay off. For a variety of complicated reasons, it's one thing is this wrong pocket problem. You'll reduce healthcare costs, but the costs that your expenditure is coming from is in housing, and they're not in the same budget. But uh, honestly, I am over trying to make the argument around cost for the reason to do housing for homeless people. We don't make that argument in anything else in healthcare. We get a new medication that comes across that will help someone with lymphoma. And Genentech may charge us $50,000 in injection for that. Do we say, oh, gosh, is that, you know, we're going to get a return on investment? And then someone makes the argument, well, Genentech stock will go up. That's good for the economy, blah, blah, blah. I've been trying for 10 years to make this argument that it's less expensive. And that argument may be able to be made in a certain subset of the highest users hmm. of the healthcare system. But in some ways, I feel like I have undermined the more powerful reason which is this is you know a human rights reason. These are our people, and we can do this without much sacrifice, I believe. I also don't want to ignore the impact of racism on homelessness. In, in San Francisco, if you're African-American, you're much more likely to be homeless than any other population. So the rates of, Afri- of, of homelessness, uh, of African-Americans in the homeless population is about 36%, while the general population in San Francisco is only 6%. So it's six times greater likelihood of being homeless if you're African-American. That isn't just because of bad luck or family disconnect or some other reason. It, it's because of the racist Uh, policies that have been in place in this country really since slavery and the impact of trauma on families that gets pushed through generations and then redlining and then the lack of of, of wealth among African-American families all leads this much higher rate of homelessness that we have to attend to as a justice issue. So we all know that the Bay Area is an incredibly expensive place Mm -hmm. to live, and we know that there's a lot of people who are homeless here, Mm -hmm. um, which is just daunting to think about how many more units we need. So what makes you think that homelessness can be solved? Yeah. Um, I think it can be solved because we have the resources, the wealth that needs to be redistributed in the right way. And perhaps more importantly, is that we need to ask the people who are living on the streets what it is they need and want. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the expensive apartment that is 
been the answer that we have done for the last 20 years. There may be other alternatives that will give people a decent, permanent place to live that isn't necessarily $650,000 a door. Whether that's outside of the Bay Area or inside the Bay Area, we need to figure out other ways to use our resources more wisely. Now, it's not an easy proposition, especially as we continue to bring in another IPO here and another IPO there, pushing up the rental costs for everybody. Um, So it is a struggle. I will not pretend that it is going to be easy. I mean, you know, one thing that we often forget is that as these rental costs increase, someone's making more money, right? And I think there must be some way to be able to take some of that existing wealth and redistribute it to people. Earlier this week, Governor Gavin Newsom and a bunch of mayors and county supervisors sent a letter to President Trump. They were asking for 50,000 more housing vouchers and to provide incentives to landlords to accept those vouchers. During his visit to the Bay Area, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, pretty much said that's not going to happen. And he criticized the way cities and counties handle the vouchers they do have. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it for the Bay. Talk to you Friday. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.